The Washington Post was acquired by Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos in 2013. And since then, the newspaper has started thinking more like a software company. They're opting to build new software rather than to buy off-the-shelf third-party solutions. Arc Publishing is a CMS that was built by the Washington Post to produce and display content. So when you visit WashingtonPost.com, you're actually viewing a site built with software by the Washington Post. They've also brought their advertising technology in-house, which is quite complicated given the amount of third-party solutions that companies tend to opt for and that brands are used to working with. Jared Dicker is the head of commercial product and technology at the Washington Post. He joins the show for a fascinating discussion of the transformation that has occurred since Bezos purchased the company. It's a great discussion of how a company can move from being a company like a publishing company that goes from being a publishing company to a software company that does publishing. We also explore the problems in digital advertising that have been covered in recent episodes of Software Engineering Daily, things like ad fraud, and Jared is very honest and open to discussing these sorts of things, which is not true of some publishers that I speak to. So thanks to listener Manny Gondham for introducing me to Jared. If you have a suggestion for a guest that you want to hear, please send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. And also, if you're interested in hosting a show for Software Engineering Daily, we are looking for engineers and journalists and hackers who want to work with us on content. This is a paid opportunity. You get $300 for hosting a show, although we do have a high-quality bar. You can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash host to find out more. And the Software Engineering Daily store is now open. If you want to buy a Software Engineering Daily branded t-shirt or hoodie or mug and support the show, they are more expensive than typical mugs or t-shirts or hoodies because we don't specialize in e-commerce, but we'd love it if you bought it anyway. It would help us out uh, and it would help spread the word. So let's get on with the show. Jared Dicker is the head of commercial product and technology at the Washington Post. Jared, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. Happy to be here. The Washington Post has been established as a source of media since long before the internet, and we've seen that most companies that existed prior to the days of the internet are gradually reshaping their businesses in light of the internet, its popularity. We've talked to insurance companies and t-shirt printing companies and manufacturers, all these companies that have been around for a really long time, and they start to look at themselves as a software company that sells insurance products or a software company that manufactures fertilizer. Uh, All of these companies that were around before the internet are gradually becoming software companies that do X. And the Washington Post is also undergoing a transformation where software engineering is becoming front and center. Describe some of the recent changes at the Washington Post. Yeah. So um, I think those are great analogies in terms of how different areas of business are really emerging into the constantly evolving ecosystem of what's happening uh, through, through technology. And what I think is very unique for the Washington Post, especially as it's become in the past year or two, is that 
a lot of the leading publishers for the past three or four years, or granted how we measure them as successful, have been technology companies that have a journalist slant. You know, when the um, the whole value of the Huffington Post in 2010 through its acquisition in 2011 was the fact that they were huge traffic drivers. They were tremendous on social um, and those sort of delivery methods. And while journalism was key in order to do that, um, the big deal for them was that their CMS and their technology stack was huge, and it allowed them to propel their journalism farther and louder than all their competitors. And you've kind of seen that with BuzzFeed and other companies like Mike and Bustle that are technology-led companies that also do journalism. And where I think the Post has really differentiated themselves in the past year or two, or I could even say the past three years since Jeff Bezos bought the company, is that they have the legacy media uh, credit. They're, they're, they have 60 plus Pulitzer prizes. Uh, we're over, you know, a hundred years old and we've taken down a president. So, um, the amount of integrity from our newsroom is extremely crucial to the point where even at this moment, Marty Baron is deemed by Vanity Fair and other trades as the greatest news editor of all time. But being that we're now funded and owned by Jeff Bezos, we're also a technology company. So whereas our competitors are technology companies that also do news, we're a news company that is now doing technology as well, if not better than anyone else in that area. So I would say uh, to just quickly answer your question, that transformation is because of Jeff Bezos, because of the purchase of the Washington Post and the aim of being an amazing journalism company that is also the best technology company in its class. There are a number of places where I can imagine technology being really useful for improving the way that the Washington Post functions. You could obviously, the CMS, which we'll discuss, uh, you know, if you build something that's superior to WordPress, then you're getting ahead of a lot of the companies that are out there because a lot of the media companies that are out there are just running off of WordPress and WordPress plugins. And I've worked with WordPress enough to know that there's, you know, it's a great one-size-fits-all tool, but when you know what you're doing, that you want something that's custom-built for what you do and not is not WordPress. Um, but there's lots of other areas where I imagine software can be useful. For example, journalists collaborating with each other or uh, sifting through large volumes of evidence or... Um, yeah, what are the the areas of the Washington Post where software or building software in-house is the most important? Great. So you really nailed our latest mission on the head in that as we look to grow at the post, both in the newsroom and especially on the revenue side of the business, um, you really need another value proposition when you're going to market. And traditional value for being a newsroom and being a uh, media company is that you provide content and you gauge the value of that content and success on how many readers are engaging with it, how large your audience is, and how much revenue you're able to pull in through brands and partners on that end. And a new pocket of business that we've been diving very deep into is the software as a service business. And in that, we're building technologies, not just on the commercial side of the business, but in the newsroom as well. And when you mention having to relinquish control of your technology to third-party companies, we've really been able to pinpoint that as 
something that can often be valuable, but something that shouldn't be solely relied on. And we launched a branch of the Washington Post called ARC, um, arcpublishing.com, in which we're building our own tools from the newsroom through analytics to the commercial side of the business that we leverage on the Washington Post that we're able to test against our audience and our partners and build based on feedback from the newsroom and other people within the organization that are using the tools. But then we then package that and we have become a software licensing company where now large publishers like Tronk and Globe and Mail and other brands and collegiate pubs are now able to license the software that we're building and leveraging in-house on the Washington Post. And to just add more details there, as I'm sure there's follow-ups, but to quickly kind of go over it, um, we've really nailed certain buckets that we want to be building within. Uh, as you mentioned, story authoring is key. You know, we built our own video products, uh, one in which is called Goldfish, that we leverage in the newsroom. And then we have a component called FlexPlay that we leverage commercially to help drive value for our brands that want to use video. Or Anglerfish, or how we do leverage on delivery. We built something called Page Builder that allows a company to use any uh, content management feed that they'd like, whether that be a Drupal or a method or a WordPress, but be able to use the front end capabilities that are so valuable in the newsroom, like drag and drop and identifying using data sets and changing headlines. Um, we built a product called Bandito, which goes beyond the traditional A-B test that really starts to recognize what images are resonating with users, what headlines resonate, how long should headlines be, and then doubling down based on what's most engaging and interesting. And by being able to own this software and build it in-house, we then have the capability to figure out where to take it next and how to best evolve it and mold it so that it could be of value, not just to other newsrooms in the space, but also to brands and agencies as well, so that we could really start infiltrating the technology space uh, at all sides, being a newsroom and understanding how users want to engage and make that applicable to everybody. This is the classic Bezos strategy of not buying, but rather opting to build. And then you build something that is at the front of the market and you can sell it to other people. And not only do you start to get an additional revenue stream off of that, but you get additional testing on your the, the product that is actually your bread and butter. You saw this with AWS where they built AWS and they run on AWS. So it gives uh, additional testing, gives additional economies of scale, uh, and it just keeps them at the cutting edge of the market as well as um, it gives them better cost structures because if they're at the cutting edge of the market and they are selling the software that other, pe other people are using... You know, you don't you don't have to pay for your own software that you're running, so you get better cost structures uh, on that. So, I I also have some questions around where media, where social media differentiates from a news source. So, for example, Facebook and other social sites do infinite scroll, and the Washington Post is not an infinite scroll. I can scroll to the bottom of the page. Why doesn't it make sense for Washington Post to have an infinite scroll? And what, what does that say about the difference between a media site like Washington Post and a social media site? I would say that the beauty of what's happening at the Post is that there are no limits when it comes to testing. You mentioned the Bezos influence 
and building first and really understanding what the true values are. We have a big belief here as we're building product in that um, if something works, we should double down on it, you know, and, and, um, and two times the innovation is really kind of two times the value in the end. And what we've been doing is that it's not that we shy away from certain things. All things are tested here, whether that's the aggregation module, the editorial dictation module, uh, being able to pull in relevant content or how we leverage comments on and off site. I think the main component of differentiation that you'll see with how we do product at the post, especially when it comes to how we're delivering our content to our readers, is that we're always evolving and looking for the next best way to do so. I think when you look at things like infinite scroll, there's a lot of variables in which why publishers will do that. Um, it's not just the reader experience and assuming that there's a certain scroll depth or that users will go a certain ways down the page and how you could best approach them by doing that. But there's also a lot of um, advertising and revenue implications that are often set within there where um, if you don't have a strong ad sales team or you don't have a strong focus on um, how to do branded content and other new tools within the revenue space, then Infinite Scroll allows a way easier opportunity for publishers to monetize their content because they could leverage programmatic and keep um, being able to refresh page views to engage those users and to drive in those dollars. So I wouldn't say for us, it's a conscious decision to say that we won't do something. I think for what you see us doing on the Washington Post, it's because we found success in doing that both on the audience side of things and both on the revenue side of things. And that even goes beyond... Um, what you see on the WashingtonPost.com properties and our approach to what we do on platforms like Facebook and Google AMP and Snapchat Discover, we've had the flexibility to really be able to experiment across these platforms and see what works. And the beauty and the most exciting things of kind of what we've been doing with those partnerships isn't so much the possibilities of what we could build and deliver on Facebook's platform and Google's platform and Snapchat's platform, but the learnings that we see there and how we can bring that back and make it applicable to our site. Like if vertical video is something that's extremely beneficial on platforms, how do we make that something that's easily accessible both to our users and to our brands? Or auto start with volume off type video plays or closed captioning auto list video plays. Trends that we're seeing through these partnerships, we then look to take back and build them within our experiences. So while while I won't say Infinite Scroll isn't of value, it may be something that we do uh, bring back one day or those conversations are always being had. I think it, we're very confident in the notion that we experiment to the maximum point that what we're doing is a clear result of things that we've seen positive results on. This is what I love about your philosophy. I've listened to several podcasts and read some of your work. And in contrast to the uh, the scared media narrative that, oh, these these companies like Twitter and Facebook are taking all of our traffic and nobody wants to go to our 
uh, our terrible WordPress site uh, with a terrible ad experience, you are basically saying, no, we're going to look at these companies as media companies that we can use as inspiration. We'll go to Snapchat, we'll publish on Snapchat, and then we'll look at why people are engaging with us on Snapchat, and then we'll bring those experiences back to the Washington Post. And, you know, maybe at a certain point, or maybe you're already there, Washington Post becomes a destination site. And, you know, this idea that we've had for like the last five or ten years where publishers are basically saying, oh, we're never going to be a destination site again. It's just, that's kind of a fearful, cowardly perspective to have. And I really appreciate the the boldness that you seem to be uh, approaching your product development process with. And I'd also say that it's a it's a very interesting time in media right now where publishers really need to decide, are they looking for short-term or long-term results? And I'm not going to lie and say it's not easier for us to say because we've experimented a lot in the past few years and have someone like Jeff Bezos's mentality driving this company that has definitely allowed us um, to experiment a lot more and feel the freedom to do so. But I think what we're seeing a lot of now are the fear that because of what's happening in media with ad blocking and traffic going to the networks and the duopoly of Google and Facebook, there's a lot of concern for publishers that they feel if they don't act now, they may not have a business in three or four years. And at the post, because we take that experimental approach, we're confident in that what we're building and leaning towards is something that will keep us afloat and keep us extremely relevant in the years to come. And you mentioned that the idea of driving users back to the site, um, subscriptions is core to our business. These are loyal users that love the Washington Post, that love our content to the point that they will pay for it. And that is always a core goal here at The Post is to drive users and show them value that we will deliver them honest and great journalism. And they know that we are the destination to get that. And all the experiments and things that we do that help us expand and broaden that audience all come back to that core goal of getting them back and delivering them what they want most from the Washington Post, and that's our journalism. So I'm not saying that what certain publishers are doing is wrong when it comes to second-guessing what's happening with Facebook and Google and platforms and how they want to dictate their business. Everyone has their own motives, and no one is wrong in that set. But I think what you're seeing with The Post is that we believe in reach and we believe in broadening audience. And at this point, we've had a lot of success in being able to experiment in those different pockets while still growing our business. You know, we reached a uh, hundred and five million unique somewhere around that back in November during the month of the election. Comscore has us at a steady 85 million uniques monthly. Um, that's a huge gain from where we were a year to two years ago. We weren't even close to that realm. So things that we're doing are paying off in a very positive way. And I think a lot of that has to do with the mentality that we're always looking to take new risks and to experiment in new realms to help, again, broaden our audience and broaden the reach of people who really want to consume trustworthy content that's delivered from the Washington Post. 
you and I were connected by Manny Gandham because he's a listener of the show and he knows my interest in advertising fraud. He's connected me to several people who know a lot about advertising fraud and are very have a vested interest in the in the advertising business or they're studying the advertising business. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if you've listened to enough of my shows to know, but like I'm basically a tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorist when it comes to how much of the internet advertising is viewed by bots rather than humans, basically because the margins that you can make off of uh, advertising fraud are so tremendous, and the the lack of discussion around advertising fraud and bots is uh, it's 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 almost it's it's alarming to me. I mean, I'm just like I, this this problem. It you know just I, I I think I know how the you know those those guys that are portrayed in the Big Short feel um you know where it's just like why doesn't anybody why isn't anybody else talking about this where you just have this situation where it seems like uh you know if you want to commit fraud and make tons and tons of money through the online advertising exchanges it's dead simple to do that um now some some of this is due to the cowardice of uh of of publishers who um, don't really care about what JavaScript blobs are loading on their page, uh, and they don't really pay attention to that, or they don't have the technical expertise. It's just somebody comes to them and says, hey, we'll pay you X dollars if you just put this blob of JavaScript on the page, and they do that, and that blob of JavaScript is committing ad fraud, essentially. Um, you know, as a publisher, Washington Post has a lot of skin in the game when it comes to the state of online advertising. Uh, what, what do you see uh, as the biggest problems in the ad tech landscape today? And and you know, are you are you as conspiratorial or conspiracy theoretical as I am, or or do you have a more um, uh, a more measured uh, and perhaps um, sympathetic perspective uh, on the ad tech um, casino? A little bit of both. Um, I'd say there was an article written about almost three years ago, uh, Joe Marchese, who founded Truex that was purchased by Fox, and now he leads advertising uh, over at Fox Entertainment. He also compared what was happening to the subprime um, crisis, you know, that the subprime mortgage crisis. And he, I think he actually called it the subprime advertising crisis. And I got to get him on the show. Joe Marchese. Yes. Joe Marchese. And it's very correct. What, what's amazing is to your point, how long it's really taken for things to even be acknowledged as being an issue. Uh, Personally, in my background, I've led product and engineering teams both on the advertising side and on the consumer side. And the reason why I focus so much on the commercial side of the business over the past couple of years is that it needs so much help. And the room for improvement is massive because for some reason, and I'm sure, again, I don't think, I don't even think you have to be a conspiracy theorist to come up with reasons why there's been an issue and no one's acted on it 
no one has really wanted to fix this. I think you have, like I mentioned earlier, publishers are driven off advertising. And if they start to expose a lot of these issues, whether they do know it or not, I think there is a, I think there's a lot of things that are happening in the dark uh, side of the ad internet uh, that, that publishers aren't as aware of. Um, then their business starts to go south. So there's fear, you know, that exposing something like this means that they can't afford to do their core product, which is journalism. Or you have a lot of these companies that are out there that are promising you revenue, you know, the third-party ad tech partners that that know very well what's going on, but see value in the business and could drive revenue to do so. So for me, the interest has really been to expose that in a way of finding a solution. I think it's very easy to pinpoint issues that are happening here and to use an ad blocker um, and to just point fingers at things that have caused us to get to where we are now in the ad space, but to be able to actually come up with certain solutions and to put in the effort to do so, I think will allow publishers and uh, brands that are working in that vein to really come out on top. Um, and that's what we've been doing at The Post. I mean, I launched this group Red at The Washington Post, which is our research experimentation and development group. The latter part is what really differentiates us in that we're not just an R&D lab that says, hey, advertising on the web is shitty. Let's uh, try to figure out a way to fix it. But Hey, look, here's here's 10 products that we've built that are going to solve for the issues with display or what's happening with video or how slow ads take the load and how we're going to uh, speed it up or how to identify fraud. Um, and that's really what we've been looking to do here. And the success of being able to focus on that has garnered such a positive light on what the post is looking to do, because even in its infancy of the group a year and a half ago and the minimal efforts that we put into it, there were highlighted so much because no one else was talking this way and no one else was coming to clients and providing solutions. And the stance I took very early on is I don't blame users for using ad blocker. You know, I don't blame them for disliking the experiences that have been presented to them over the past decade on the web. Uh, I wish that there was more knowledge out there or more documented um, understanding as to, hey, publishers need to make money, and this is unfortunately the way that we transact at the moment. So if we want to continue with journalism, these are the ads. But there could be an effort made to help make that experience better. And at The Post, that's what we really look to do. So I do believe uh, that it's a huge issue. Um, I don't believe that uh, it's a conspiracy theory that there are things bubbling up and they need to be addressed. Um, I think that you have certain folks in this industry, you know, you have Manny and um, a few others, uh, and I'm sure they've been on the show or are listeners of the show that want to be uh, solution driven when it comes to these things. And that's kind of where we are now. And I'd like to believe that the post is pioneering a lot of those things. You know, we're not just focusing on products that are going to help drive revenue and build better experiences for the post. We want to be the ones building these products and driving these experiences for the rest of the web and working together with brands and and showing them how they could leverage certain technologies to help facilitate what they're doing to make a cleaner experience and a more honest experience on the web itself. And I think with the rise of fake news and the conversations around that, 
the one benefit that's actually come out of this is that we're now identifying these sites, these bots, these fraudulent destinations that exist that are not just delivering fake news on different social platforms, that, but that are also taking revenue dollars from brands and partners um, and running them fraudulently on their site. So I think it has come to a head. In short, I wish it didn't take so long to do so, but there's a lot of people fighting the good fight right now more than ever to help expose this and to hopefully provide a fix. And and while while we're not there yet, I think we're well on our way. Well, I worked at Amazon for about eight months, and my experience with there was that the value of the culture was such that product was able, like great product was shipped despite the fact that uh, the company did not have the luxuries of a Facebook or a Google. And when you think about a Facebook or a Google, the reason they are able to have a luxurious culture with free food and perks and massages and just crazy expenses is because they have an advertising business. And the margins from advertising are so tremendous because all you're doing is selling bits that appear on a computer screen and you get to make money off of displaying those bits to somebody. So the the core economics are so insane for advertising. And you think about that relative to the margins in selling books on the internet or selling any sort of goods where you have these warehouses and you have lots of competitors and you've got all these logistical costs and you know the margins for uh, for an Amazon style business are much lower obviously and you know famously Bezos said your margin is my opportunity it makes it makes me wonder the margins that Facebook and Google are getting off of advertising if if Bezos can you know sort of work with the post as you know and work with red you know the this research experimentation and development team that you you st- stood up at the Washington Post to sort of figure out how online advertising works and you know the bar is frankly i mean i you could say the bar is high because of facebook and google but it, i mean is it really that high when we have all these problems and clearly they're making these insane margins I mean, maybe there's, there's, it certainly seems like there's room for somebody else to step in and start eating away at some of those margins and eating away at some of those horrible issues we have in this duopolistic environment. It's such a great point that you make because I think that runs the gamut of perception of where we are and where we could go is both in terms of how many, like how much dollars could flow into a business, but also the talent that you attract to solve these problems. To be honest, um, and at the post, a lot of the success I've found with the commercial and revenue driven products that we build here are because I brought in outside perspectives that have never worked in advertising product or operations before. And I did that because I think it's very easy to fall into the system and how things currently work. You know, personally, I believe within a publisher, uh, the advertising operations team is one of the most important teams within the organization because if they don't do their job 99.9% well, then they've failed. Like the expectation for things to deliver and not to affect the site and to avoid malware um, is always assumed, right? And never celebrated. And because of that, though, I think it's very easy to fall into a systematic type approach 
to when you're thinking about how to do things new. So what we've done here, and it's actually affected the entire culture of the Washington Post when it comes to commercial product and ad product perspective is we've brought in core engineers that have worked on our site team or outside engineers that have never worked in advertising before, but that are extremely talented, both front end and back end. And what we found is that when we look at certain issues and when you haven't worked within the advertising ecosystem before, you start to be able to pull things apart and ask the question why. Uh, I'll give you a direct example. Uh, we've been dealing with slowness of the web and latency for years. And JavaScript was always to blame. <laughs> well, JavaScript is slow. And if you have JavaScript, then it's going to run slow. And that's evolved into the past three years that, hey, look, you could do anything you want on your website and give your users the best experience. But if you have ads, your site will be slow. Ads are just slow. And that conversation has been snowballing and snowballing to the point where we have ad blockers I think for the most part, because users don't like the front end UX of how an ad works, but also it slows down the site, it's collecting data, it's just not optimal in general. And we brought in outside engineers with a different perspective and hired them within the red group to look at how to solve latency, something which other third party solutions and Google and others have not been able to do yet. And we built a patent pending product called Zeus which is basically a client-side wrapper with server-side elements that we package in a bundle that works on the Washington Post and we license off as well. But think of it, if I'm gonna use a DC analogy, think of it like the Accela compared to Amtrak. We now surround all our third-party ad technology, whether that's DFP or Outbrain or header bitter SSP integrations, but we've built site performance optimizations on the JS client side so that our ad technology loads instantly, that it's cooperating directly with how our site is performing so that we have the fastest ad delivery on the web. And that only came about because we asked the question why. So to go full circle to your point, there is such room to grow here. And though there's fear for duopoly and that, um, all these things like fraud and blocking are happening. If you look at those as just problems to solve and opportunity, there's a huge business. And as you mentioned, advertising itself is, you know, multi-billion dollar business that's been around forever across all mediums. It's not going anywhere, but the room to improve it and the companies that will improve it will come out on top. And to look at that as an opportunity is key because once they do so, then everything will begin to change. There are all these technological opportunities that we can discuss, like you mentioned, with what you can get when you take a look with fresh eyes at all of the issues in advertising and you start to say, okay, what can we build rather than what is the best way to integrate with what's already there? Are there more fundamental questions that you're starting to ask about advertising? For example, you know... I sell all these ads for Software Engineering Daily, and, and it's a lot of work, and it's it's been really interesting. I mean, I, I, I have actually grown to enjoy the ad sales process and getting this firsthand understanding of what actually works in advertising. I mean, podcasting is, podcast advertisements are a little bit different than dynamic, uh, I mean, I don't do dynamic podcast ads, but it's a little bit, it, you know, it really gives you an intimate, because I own the production process. I make the ads myself. I write the copy and I work with the brands on the copy. 
but we're also you know looking at the metrics and we're looking at you know what works for the direct response and it really makes me assess at a fundamental level like what kinds of advertising actually works like does brand advertising work does direct response work is is the call to action on a direct response campaign actually indicative of how successful that campaign is what are the the core questions in advertising that you're starting to have because i'm like for example i i think about like like i'm in the gym sometimes and i see a car commercial and i'm like okay that car commercial probably costs several million to produce and here it is on tv and like i'm no you know nobody else is in the gym right now and it's being advertised to me and like i'm not i don't care about this this is never going to convince me to get a car if i get a car i'm going to do a ton of research like brand advertising doesn't convince me to buy a car but I mean, maybe it convinces other people, but I actually have my doubts about that. I don't know. Do you have any questions about the fundamental axioms that advertisers have? Yes. I mean, I'd say it's an excellent point. And a lot of the, I don't want to use the word struggles or frustrations, even though I just did, but a lot of what's evolved in the digital advertising space in terms of how challenging it's been to sell as compared to television and print sales is because of the amount of data and information brands can now receive when they execute online. You know, you have the opportunity to see your exact demo, what users are engaging, where they click, how did they convert, where did they come from, compared to what you used to get on, on or, or still get through television and through print means where since it's not digitized, you know, a lot of these reporting mechanisms are preset. So I think what you're seeing is that everyone is constantly asking questions as to see the true value. Um, you have companies like Facebook and Google that because of the data collection and the amount of information that they have, they're able to make extremely educated delivery choices of which ads to deliver to which users and to show, okay, this direct response worked or this gave you more brand lift and so forth. Um, I think each brand thinks differently and we need to be building products that help satisfy and run the gamut as to what brands are looking for and what they see the most value in. You know, for example, um, there's some brands that are just looking to do a perspective campaign that they're innovative or they're thinking differently. So they'll partner and do a VR campaign or an AR campaign sponsorship, though there's really no precedent for how to value and show true ROI of what you're doing since that medium is new, though the association with doing something new is valuable enough. I think you see a lot of brands going that way, you know, and then the DR advertisers and being able to actually purchase a card to your point. And um, I just purchased the new car. And because I looked up accessories for that car, I'm now getting retargeted to repurchase that car. I would never buy the same car twice. So there are some <laughs> fundamental issues with how that retargeting technology works, but there are some components that could be fixed and altered to do so. So, what I think it is, is I think when digital advertising came about, a lot of very, very, very smart people got involved to help make it as granular and smart and targeted as possible to the point where it's too <laughs> smart 
and analytical and targeted in that it provides a fault because a lot of the times the products you're seeing you've already purchased or you're clearly not interested in. And now we're peeling back. Um, so yes, I mean, we're, we're constantly asking those questions. We're building products to do so. What I would say is that I firmly believe that from a publisher perspective, in order to survive, you can't have siloed product processes anymore. Um, as a company, we're looking to do the same thing, whether it's through revenue or through our editorial team or through our analytics team. And that's to really grow the post, to grow our audience, to grow our awareness, to grow our footprint. And every action that we're doing should contribute to going towards that. So when we build products, the goal is not just, hey, let's build a product that's going to help with direct response or, hey, let's build a product that's going to help with display or video ads or build a product that's going to help power commenting or help bolster our video views on site. We really look to when we build products within those certain um, pockets to be able to have them flex across all the different pillars of our business so that we can leverage these things and really learn what makes most sense and often define the analytics that we should be looking towards, not just be assuming that the current analytics and ROI of how advertising worked on print and television should be what we look for on digital. So in working at the Washington Post, you have gotten lots of insight from Bezos. What are the lessons in leadership and technology construction that you've learned from working under Bezos? I believe that for me personally, the biggest Bezos effect that I've seen is really my opportunity to question things. I think in previous organizations, when you question certain regularities of the business, whether that's the technology that you're using or how you deliver content or how you're driving revenue. There's usually a lot of different people within the org that this idea needs to bounce off of. And oftentimes you strangle it to death. Um, and what I've seen, and again, Bezos has a lot of different mantras, uh, even, even um, the the shareholder letter that he just released a month back um, is inspiring when you see how he tells you not to get caught within these proxies, um, which is something that we practice very well here. What I found is that the biggest effect of working in a Jeff Bezos led or owned, I shouldn't say led because he's, he's, he's not, he's not hands on to the point where he's directing everything that we're doing. But the mentality of having him as our owner has really allowed a, me for the first time as a product leader within a company to be able to take risks and push things forward without feel like I'm hitting a wall. And a direct example of that is as we come up with certain ideas, we're a solution-based company. Uh, in a lot of traditional companies, it's easier to say no. And um, here the question is always yes. And the answer is always how. And we are pushing everything to the limit to really throw things out there, test live, see what works and really build things for our customers. And, you know, to really um, to really hone in on Jeff Bezos uh, as a 
leader, you know, across many industries. And it seems like soon every industry, um, he wants to make his customers happy. And that's the key to success. And here we practice that every single day in that, how can we make our audience happy? How can we make our advertisers happy? How do we build experiences that gift, that give our users and our advertisers the gift of speed that help them through their day that actually provide utility? And if we build products that do that, success will follow. And that's really something that isn't just said or lip service per se. Um, it's something that's actually practiced. And for the first time at a media company, I've seen the direct effect of taking risk, um, really doubling down on things that work, not running into roadblocks, and how beneficial that makes the company both with internal culture and how we're perceived externally. Uh, I often say when I was at the Huffington Post four or five years ago, I never looked at the Washington Post as a competitor, especially in the technology space. Now, I really, there's very few competitors that I look at um, being at the Washington Post as I feel that we've really come to a place where from public perception of where we are as a newsroom, as a business, and as a technology company, there's really no stronger company at all three than the Washington Post. And that's something that's been evolving since Jeff Bezos has bought the company. And that's something that's really um, come to fruition through his practices and mentalities that, that, that he's pushed through every company that he owns. Bezos has an allergy to the to the idea of competition. You know, he he always talks about like you you shouldn't be competitor focused. And you know, when I was at uh, when I was at Amazon, I actually I read um, Peter Thiel's book Zero to One a couple times, and like Thiel says the same thing. And like Thiel and Bezos are obviously two of the uh, most referenced uh, sources on you know how can you build a successful technology company, and you know, it's it's a it's kind of a profound statement. You should not be focused on competition, uh, even though much of you know the writing about different tech companies. Oh, Facebook is copying Snapchat or blah blah blah. Like the fact is, is that the the scope of different technologies and different types of companies that could be built, even meet different media companies, is so tremendous that there's it's there's it's not like a, a super efficient market. Uh, where you know you can just clone something in a day, and and uh, you know there's just such such differentiation because the the landscape of what could be built relative to what actually is built is uh, there's such a big difference there, and um, you know with regard to what Bezos does um, in terms of his thinking about his customers, you know, I think he he even thinks about the employees of his companies as customers, and it's like, what do the employees of his companies want to do? And you know, this is something that I I remember feeling at Amazon, and and uh, and you know, initially when I joined Amazon, I was like, ah, you know, it's Amazon, that's great, but I wish I was at Google or Facebook. But what I, what I've realized over time is that you know, the Google or the Facebook where you just get lavishly. Um, you know, just showered with free food and and goods and and stuff, which you don't have at Amazon. You know, you have the door desks and the sort of it's almost like a brutality, Lord of the Flies, cheapness, uh, frugality. But 
what what good employees actually want, what the best engineers and the best product developers actually want is the freedom to do stuff, the freedom to debate, the freedom to build. And that stuff actually doesn't cost much money, but it costs a lot in terms of how do you reinforce that in the culture. And I think that's that is the the brilliance of Bezos is because he's he's so focused on the philosophy and the philosophy that is durable like he doesn't do things that are short-termist and he doesn't do things that you know if he's going to do x he's going to have a philosophy in 10 years that is not going to conflict with x today so he's not going to have you know people be able to refer to his statements in the past and and say oh he's hypocritical his stuff is what he says is really durable and i think that has that has led to the tremendous compounding properties of his businesses. Yes, yes. And I believe that, especially with the post, the the talent, to your point, that we've been able to attract because of this, you know, because of things that have been done and practices uh, that have been executed um, at other companies have, has really attracted the right sort of talent that the Washington Post needed to basically bring on their resurgence. You know, the Post, um, like many legacy media companies, it's very easy to fall within familiar traps and not to evolve. And the fact that we constantly dare ourselves not to evolve and bring in the talent that isn't scared to evolve has really allowed the post from a technology perspective to really become one of the front runners, not just in the new space, but in the tech space, uh, to the point where Jeff Bezos has said that he'd put the Washington Post tech team against any tech team in Silicon Valley. So the amount of adoration and uh, belief behind what we're doing has really attracted the right folks to help us continue to do what we're really looking to do, which is, you know, to make the post the the destination for anyone looking to read, you know, great journalism on the web, on platforms in VR and and beyond. The the journalism landscape has become such a, a cornucopia today. Like you can choose from such a variety of sources, and in some ways, this heightens the importance of big institutions that are investing a lot in fact-checking and consistency, but in other ways, this big landscape of different things you can select from, it suggests that maybe we should be assimilating the truth from a variety of sources and viewpoints. Maybe there is no absolute source of truth. We're just always asymptoting closer to the truth. Maybe we should treat all news sources the same and go wide rather than deep. What What do you think of this contrast between the large volume of small news organizations and the small volume of large esteemed organizations like the Washington Post. What are the values in those two sides of the spectrum? The the importance of an organization like the Washington Post um, is, is more prevalent now than ever. Um, in the beginning of our convo, we spoke about the publishing landscape and how different media companies are set up and the ongoing trend, especially with these smaller publishers, has really been a technology-first type approach. And I think you have 
you have the companies that aren't like companies like the all and you know the outline which are heavy journalism type companies that are leveraging tech but a lot of these smaller ones that have now actually become quite large were technology companies that then that also have media and journalism attached to it and and what the post has really shown is that the the legacy news and most trusted organizations like the Post and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, when applying attention to tech, allows them to be the mammoths of this industry and show that if technology isn't a differentiator, because we're all equally as innovative in that space, then our journalism will be. And what has been amazing is like, I often call the Post the first emerging legacy media company because the traditions in journalism and the footprint that the company has in history paired with the acquisition by Jeff Bezos and the post becoming a top technology organization is really one of the most unique stories that has happened in journalism in the past, you know, 10 years. And the importance now, especially as you see during Pulitzer time and the quality reporting that uh, David Farenhold has done, you know, during election season, uh, you can't put a price against that. And the uptick in subscriptions that you've seen, uh, announced by both the Post and the Times really shows that users and consumers value the journalism first and they'll always value true journalism. So I think it's always been important. I think we've seen a resurgence in recognizing that importance in the past year or so, especially around this election. But there's still areas for small publishers. I mean, it's interesting. Before um, before the election and before um, the outcome of the election, I thought that it was even harder for small publishers because that emergence was huge and everyone was looking for different outlets. And then consumers started to really hone in on the more traditional publishers because they were looking for that news that they're comfortable with and the news that they know is 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 well reported and now after the results of the election i think there could be millions of more media companies because i think there can't be enough news out there now there needs to be tools and certain things set up to battle fake news and these issues are very real but the idea that there isn't enough space for great journalism i don't think is true i think there is enough space but i think because of the emergence of fake news and a lot of other issues, especially on platform publishing, companies like the Washington Post and New York Times are more important than ever, and we're seeing a direct effect of that. Yeah, I agree with all that. Okay, Jared, well, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, and um, you know, I hope to do more shows with the Washington Post or, or with you in the future. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure, and have a great week. 